You're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic.
There's something just ineffably strange about that piece that stayed with me since I first heard it, well, long enough ago. That's a slightly abridged version of Louis Andreessen's Symphony for Losa Snaren, or Symphony for Open Strings, written in 1978. Now, I opened the very first episode of this show some two and a half years ago now, with a piece by Andreessen, and here we are again. So forgive me if this comes across as something of a personal indulgence, or maybe you hear something in it as well. It's not really one of his core pieces, the operas or the progressive large-scale works of the 70s like the Stadt, in which he so effectively blended the American minimalism of Steve Reich and so on with a much harder-edged European element. That and other works of the period went a good way towards changing perspectives on what large ensembles like the orchestra could be, with their incorporation of amplified instruments like electric guitars and basses, the ditching of strings, and the working with massive blocks of sound that were bounced around between sections with the dynamic force of a pile driver. And alongside a Marxist political drive, there was a communal, utilitarian focus to the music. It was for players to play and enjoy playing. And this piece shares some of those qualities, but it's a relatively low-key work, being written more as a teaching piece, I believe, for a group of 12 string players at the Royal Conservatory in The Hague. It's also a bit of an anomaly, and then it marked a brief foray back into using symphonic or more traditional compositional processes that he had ditched in the step towards finding the style he honed through the 70s and for which he became known. Well, yes and no. You can still hear the minimalist language within individual sections, though they're complicated by darker and more ambiguous harmonies, and the development overall is never that minimal for that long. What is definitely typical for Andreessen, insofar as he employs strings, is the use of non-vibrato. Ah, yes, you say. Well, how can an open string be anything else? Pragmatically, this means that the strings of consecutive instruments need to be tuned differently and that a stepwise melody would have to be split between players, creating a slightly dislocated spatial quality to the piece. Sonically, it also has that flat-edged sound, and not to wax poetic, but also perhaps reflects something of the flatness or even greyness of the Dutch landscape that I find very striking when it comes to string writing. We've had centuries now of the use, and often overuse in my opinion, of vibrato in classical string writing, so to hear a string tone unadorned in this way can make it seem almost otherworldly in some sense, or at least something that harks back to a lost era. And that flatness, that greyness, is set against the astringency to the harmonic writing, even a sourness to it, particularly in that otherwise plaintive final chordal section that I guess may be influenced by the final chorale section of Stravinsky's Symphonies of Wind Instruments. I find it pretty moving, I have to say. That was performed by the Cecilia Consort, conducted by Ed Spaniard, and is taken from the album Melody, Symphony for Losa Snaren, and that was released on Attaka back in 1986.
Thank you.
that's got a bit of a spring in its step. That's Musica Slovaka, written in 1975 by Ilya Zelinka. Now, a slight caveat, much as with the Andreessen piece, that is probably not the most representative work of Zelinka's. Something counterintuitive is going on on this show, evidently. But it is, I believe, the most popular. Born in Bratislava, he was influenced by the modernist composers of the early 20th century, along with the European avant-garde of the 50s and 60s. And this was very much the route he followed in his own work, a fairly gargantuan body of music, incorporating operas, film and theatre scores, piano works, including two pieces for piano and bongos, worth a spin those, no less than 14 string quartets, no less than nine symphonies, vocal and electronic music. Wow. And this modernist progressive style was very much the route he followed until the 70s, that is, when more experimental idioms were suppressed by the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. As a consequence, he turned to writing more palatable quote-unquote music based on folk and neo-romantic styles. A familiar enough story, and I wonder what he himself made of pieces such as this. I certainly don't hear any of the dark irony or sarcasm you get with Shostakovich, for example. This seems altogether a little lighter of heart, though perhaps it's not wise to assume too much here. Inspired as it is by the folk music of northern Slovakia, I guess it wasn't in danger of being viewed as in any way modern or subversive, but I'd not wager much on it being any the worse for it. In any case, there certainly seems to be a lot of affection out there for it on the part of both performers and audiences. That was performed by the string ensemble of the Slovak Sinfonieta Zilnia, and they were directed by Ernest Patloko, who I think played the violin as well. It's taken from the album Archi di Slovakia, and that was released on Pavlik Records in 2011.
Well, I was trawling through new releases recently and I came across that, put out by the always excellent Sheffield-based label, Another Tambra. That's Ma Fin et Mon Commencement, or My End is My Beginning, written in 2019 by Slovak composer Adrian Demok. The title references the piece of the same name by the granddaddy of 14th century counterpoint Guillaume de Machaut. And that piece is a pretty ingenious example of a crab canon, a piece that is essentially palindromic, the vocal parts being the same forwards as backwards. But apparently Adrian de Mock was thinking only very loosely of the Machaut, with the title, I guess, being more poetic than anything else. I don't think his piece is palindromic anyhow. He has somewhat cryptically described it as follows. The keywords, music, pianissimo, trio, Schumann, Purcell, Fantasia upon one note, counterpoint, Rishikata. Well, the Purcell, Fantasia upon one note reference makes sense, and a Rishikar is a type of late Renaissance slash early Baroque instrumental piece. The term means to search out, and many Rishikars are effectively preludes to following pieces, serving the function of searching out the key or mode that will later be more clearly established. And in this piece, you can hear that single line, that single thread being played by the cello throughout and being constantly recontextualized harmonically and I guess temporarily by the clarinet and piano that seem to orbit around it until near the end, that is, when it all just seems to break free and open out into another world. Just great all in all. That was performed by members of Apartment House, Reed Chibar, viola, Heather Roche, clarinet, and Mark Noop on piano. And it's taken from the album Halalika, and as mentioned, that was released on another timbre just last month. Boing. You stupid kite, come down out of that tree. Kite, kite. Chuff, chuff, chuff. Clam, clam, clack, 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 Chomp, chomp, crunch, crunk, crack, crackle. Go. Oh, gosh. Da-ling, 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 tinkle, Dum, dum, dum. 
she's got a ticket to ride. She's got a uh, the weather tomorrow must be cloudy. So <laughs> knock knock. Oh, smack. Grunt, snuff, glab, zboom, crumb, hiss, rumble, zbam, spike, just crack, and a scrap, scrum, clash. Slam, slap, smash, splat, snap, smack, snort, splash, like tick, like spring, stomp, 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 ugh, thud, stomp, stomp, stomp. Iconic Kathy Barbarian there with Stripsody, her composition from 1966. She was and is a giant of contemporary music vocal performance. She pretty much wrote the book on it, along with those composers she worked with. Her husband, Luciano Berrio, John Cage, Heinz Werner Henzer, Louis Andreessen, and so on and so on. She also became something of a cultural icon, I think in large part due to her ability to bridge between the worlds of classical and popular music. She openly challenged the increasingly obsolete hard rock conventions of traditional opera and paved the way for the emergence of an era in which the genre became more open to contemporary outside references, not that it has ever really managed to shake off its elitist image. Anyway, in her article, La Nueva Vocalita nell'Opera Contemporaneana, or the new vocality in contemporary music from 1966, she outlined a new role for vocal performance in contemporary music. This new vocality in looking beyond the beautiful tones or bel canto of traditional opera practice pointed to a direction in which, quote, the voice has an endless range of vocal styles at its disposal, embracing the history of music as well as aspects of sound itself. And I think that this philosophy can be seen as fundamental to the development of vocal performance practice and to the work of subsequent artists such as Meredith Monk and Laurie Anderson, amongst many others. All that being said, I didn't actually know Kathy Barbarian composed, 
until I came across that piece. As the title suggests, it's an exploration of the onomatopoeic sounds of comic strips, which she uses to relate a rapid succession of scenes. And in its cut-up and collage technique, moving between the sound of someone sneezing, people kissing, car tires screeching, chickens clucking, cats meowing, and so on, all juxtaposed with virtuosic aria technique, it captures, I think, an essence of what must have made her such an engaging performer for so many. As a side note, it was also animated by Roberto Zamarin, and watching it with the animation definitely adds to it. You can see that on YouTube and elsewhere. It was recorded a few times by Kathy Barbarian herself, and numerous times since by others. The version you heard there is taken from the album Kathy Barbarian Pop Art, and that was released on Vinyl Hermitage in 2017. Are you interested in ideas of time or synchronicity? No. no. Do you feel that the attributes of a given object or system must necessarily dictate the terms of its interpretation? No. Would you agree with the statement that a given object or system would Yes. Do you believe that any given object that consists in constructing ways and essentially any one of the things for interpreting reality is a fundamental fallacious one? Yes. Have you clearly delineated to yourself in your mind a conceptual apparatus that separates from data content from what you could call the noise of the system? No, no, no. Have you found yourself applying outward and ontological frameworks to systems of meaning that you might say that you have their own preconditions of value? No. no. Are you engaged in the current debate surrounding the problem of reality by a couple of deontological principles of ethical truth? With no. no. Do you subscribe to the principle that each individual syntactical unit of a given speech act must necessarily obviate its own essentially arbitrary nature in order to successfully denote meaning or value of a metaphysical nature? Yes. Have you found yourself tempted to articulate a new conception of subject object relations that attempts to de reify the categorical constructs that have hitherto constrained the discourse in this area? No. No. Has this conversation up until this point succeeded in demonstrably laying out a framework for enacting principles of discourse which allow for a certain subjective freedom of mind and for very seemingly equivalent yet not necessarily mutually exclusive objects of potential ideological positions? Yes. Would you disagree with the argument that a given conception of epistemic certainty is by definition adopted by the community subscribing to its corresponding language game makes an essentially accurate representation of reality? Yes. 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 But do you not have made yourself vulnerable to the criticism that your position purposely obscures the terms upon which it defines its axioms? No. So to speak, insofar as any finality is essentially incompatible, arguably even incomprehensible nature of the fact of our own consciousness on the one hand and on the other hand. Yes, but arguably the question of how to avoid an infinite regress? Not necessarily. Do you consider yourself someone who can successfully avoid equivocating between opposing lexicographical orders, even when doing so both advances your argument and you easily slip off the radar of your inner interlocutor? No, 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 I think we'd agree that you're here for constructed in a rather than mostly consistent and economical conceptual framework for understanding these problems, yet many of your critics still remain skeptical of your opinion.
Well then. There is a certain strain of music that I would subjectively file under stuff I used to enjoy playing at the tail end of parties with a view towards pushing people's buttons. And I am pleased to say that the first of those two pieces is a worthy latter-day addition to that noble canon. You heard there an enhanced interrogation of authenticity and a discreet infinity by Portland-based composer Matt Carlson, one half of the duo Golden Retriever. He's released a few solo recordings under his own name, of which I think this is the latest. His autobiography is, well, oblique. He says, I'm a 36-year-old electronic music composer who can remember being a 14-year-old electronic music composer and expects to one day be an 80-year-old electronic music composer. Thanks, Matt. But I do like this. When I intermittently come across humour in the context of electronic music, itself perhaps not a genre overly renowned for it, to be fair, I just find it so refreshing. Who knew that music, and indeed message, can be both silly and deadly serious at the same time? I love the sonic inventiveness of the vocal treatment throughout the album those two pieces are taken from, The Road to Nowhere, which to me both sits in and develops a tradition of tech sound pieces by the likes of Charles Amikarnian, Charles Dodge, Bruce Nauman, and Robert Ashley. And exploring the interaction of vocals with modular synthesis it seems to blur any sense of dividing line between the two. Instead, it's as though the vocal is part of the electronic armature itself. Sometimes we can hear the words quite clearly, whilst to others they seem to dissolve and fizz into the musical texture itself, becoming semantically beyond reach. I'm sure whole PhDs could be written on the textual approach, the intertextuality, ah yes, blending as it does linguistics and verbal games with a seemingly absurdist philosophical viewpoint. But casting that all mercifully aside, the textures and sound design in their own right are just highly engaging, and it's got a weird, off-kilter rhythmic approach, never quite settling into any predictable metric patterns. They're definitely teasing in that direction at times. Four stars, highly recommended. The album, as mentioned, The View From Nowhere, was released on Shelter Press in 2016.
some incredible overtones going on there. That was three of the 16 stanzas on stillness and music unheard, written in 2004 by Antoine Bouget, the Dutch composer and co-founder of the Vondelweiser Group, a loose international collective of composers and performers founded in 1992, along with German violinist Burkhard Schottauer. They were then joined by others, including Jörg Frey, Michael Pizarro, and Eva Maria Huben, whose organ music I played on this show sometime last year. The Vondelweiser aesthetic is sparse, often extremely sparse and quiet soundscapes, incorporating frequent silences. It's been described as being about, quote, the evaluation and integration of silences, rather than an ongoing carpet of never-ending sounds. The pieces are often also long, sometimes running into hours and beyond, in order, I think, to open up alternative listening experiences, with the music seemingly less concerned with linear clock time and more with enacting a timeless sonic space to just inhabit. Unsurprisingly, Cage is a big influence. And if that is the kind of thing that appeals, then I highly recommend checking out the many releases on their own label, Edition Vondelweiser. That piece, 16 stanzas, serenely builds and decays again over its 16 sections with a ritualistic sense of procedurality. The three you heard there were from around the middle. It's written for 16 instruments of the same kind, so what you heard there is actually 16 bowed vibraphones, all played by Greg Stewart. The score asks the performer to play sustained tones within a small pitch window, I think a semitone or half step above or below the written pitch, that the performer may then place in any octave. Now, given the vibraphone is an instrument of fixed pitch, Greg Stewart read all of the pitch indications as written and then distributed the pitches by chance in the various octaves of the vibraphone. This was then further shaped by Antoine Bouget, who created a, quote, double wave shape of the work's amplitude, where not only each stanza fades in and out, but also the work as a whole. So the loudest stanzas are in the middle, with the quietest at the start and end. On digital, the whole album is burned as a single track, and it's very interesting to look at the waveform with its cyclical symmetry, which almost functions as a visually decodable map of the album. That album is of the same name, 16 stanzas on stillness and music unheard, and was released on the label La Inamable in 2013.
gorgeous. That's Henriette Bosmans and her song Lead Kindly Light, written in 1945. Born in Amsterdam, she was a well-established pianist by the 20s, both within the Netherlands and throughout Europe, before going on to study composition. But as a female composer, she found less recognition initially, exceptions being performances given by colleagues and friends. Her international breakthrough came later as a result of a few key pieces, and then came the war. She refused to become a member of the notorious Kulturkammer, the Nazi Chamber of Culture, which was required of all Dutch musicians. And at the end of August 1942, performance of her music was outright banned. She earned an income instead, playing piano in private concerts. After, she concentrated almost solely on vocal compositions, and in particular that song, Lead Kindly Light, set to a poem by Cardinal John Henry Newman, which was first performed in November 1945, six months after the liberation of the Netherlands. And it was performed there by the soprano Julia Bronckhorst, and she was accompanied by Martin Hilnius on piano. It's taken from the album Henriette Bosman's and Her Circle, and was released on Globe in 1988. your ideas and from 
what you've told me, they're incredible. Yeah, not everyone has these ideas, let alone your charisma. I don't know how you do it. How's the pressure? Okay, great. I don't know what we would do without you. Are you ready to move on? it up for me now? Why wouldn't you take the opportunities presented to you? Someone is going to. Someone has to. And you always seem to be in the right place. At the right time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You naturally attract possibility. And you know how to follow possibility through into success. You aren't afraid of it. So many people are. But it's more than that even. You're so special in so many ways. All of your achievements just seem like your natural right. I was lost before I met you. And I know so many other people were too. You make us feel safe and secure. I don't know what we would do without you. What I would do without you. You make us better. I don't know how you do it. So did that do anything for you? Did it make you feel a particular way? Give you a particular tingle, maybe? If it did have some kind of effect, that's maybe to be expected, as it was in fact intended to induce ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Now the focus of a whole subculture, which has largely been driven by online platforms such as YouTube, ASMR is a tingling sensation that typically begins on the scalp, and moves down the back of the neck and upper spine. It's said to signify the subjective experience of low-grade euphoria characterized by a combination of positive feelings and a distinct static-like tingling sensation on the skin. Now, whether that euphoria relates to arousal of a sexual, aesthetic, or merely relaxing sensory one is a topic of ongoing debate. But the word meridian was apparently chosen by one of the founding members of the ASMR community, Jennifer Allen, as an alternative to orgasm, with the other words being chosen to emphasize a more objective clinical reading of the phenomenon. I'm not totally sure of the science here, but interestingly, there is some emerging evidence of the therapeutic benefits of ASMR on a whole range of conditions, including insomnia, depression, chronic anxiety, and panic attacks. It's usually brought on by stimuli referred to as triggers that may be encountered through the interpersonal interactions of daily life. And that piece that you heard, Lonely at the Top, is like an auditory textbook of them. Quiet, repetitive sounds resulting from everyday tasks, chewing, crunching, slurping, or biting foods, tapping on surfaces such as plastic, wood, paper, and metal and the close mix sound of breathing in and out. The vocalist is Claire Tolan. 
She's a contemporary artist who's been working with ASMR for the past 10 years or so. And the other sounds that you heard there are generated by Holly Herndon, an American composer, musician, and sound artist based in the Bay Area, I think. And the piece is taken from Holly Herndon's second album, Platform. It's quite a departure from her usual work to keep with the accidental theme of this show. For a taste of some of that though, here's another track from the album.
Well, whenever you're after EDM-style choruses, the tonic is obviously the first place you turn to. That was An Exit by Holly Herndon. She's built up quite a following now, with three albums to date, I think, of music which incorporates voices, often her own, into a variety of electronic music contexts. It's music that sits halfway between out-and-out club bangers and something much more aligned with the electronic and electric acoustic music of the European avant-garde. As to the first influence, well, as a teenager, she spent several years living in Berlin on a high school exchange program absorbed in the city's techno scene, and the latter must have come through college and her own experimentation with laptop-based computer music. There is definitely a cool, even perhaps cold and cerebral sound to her music, and it sits in an interesting and perhaps in some ways awkward space between the utilitarian demands of club music which it consciously never quite satisfies and, well, something much more avant-garde. I think certainly some people coming looking for the former will be disappointed, but viewed from the other way round, as I believe Holly Herndon herself may see it, it becomes something more interesting, I think. A progressive art music practice made human by the use of the voice and all the music's referential leanings. The previous piece, Lonely at the Top, as mentioned, was performed by Claire Tolan on voice, accompanied by Holly Herndon on objects, and No Exit that you just heard was Holly Herndon, Vocals and Electronics, Amnesia Scanner, Electronics. Both are taken from her album Platform, released on 4AD in 2015.
A late inclusion to the show, but nonetheless for it. That's The Prayer, written in 1998 by Iris Segi from Prezhov, Slovakia, and now based, I believe, in Zurich. It's a solemn affair, taking a text from the Latin liturgy and building from that Spartan chant-like opening to some anguished dissonances in the climactic moments and those eerie glissandos or pitch bends on single syllables midway through, and just a little chink of light at the end with the major key change. It was performed by the Prayer Volcan Ensemble Ars Canora, conducted by Stefan Fuchs, and that was put out on the Ars Canora YouTube channel in 2012. Now, there have been several pieces written in remembrance of the Holocaust over the years. Perhaps music with its abstract nature makes it somehow more suitable to convey an event which can almost seem to defy comprehension and description via other means. Anyhow, here is one I discovered a few years ago that for me is amongst the most affecting.
Sharon's Gift, written in 1982 by Tira de Marez-Oyens. It was written for her husband, Menachem Arnoni, the Jewish philosopher and academic. Together, they had made a trip to places associated with the deaths of family members during the Holocaust. Arnoni became depressed, unable to forgive himself for his own survival, and he soon after attempted to take his own life, ending up in a coma for four days. Tira later said, Like Orpheus, I descended into Hades there to plead with Sharon. As he released my dear one to me, Sharon's gift was written in gratitude. Born in the Netherlands, she initially composed acoustic music, including chamber music and song cycles, before becoming interested in the possibilities of electronics in the 1960s, and after that point she wrote both electronically and instrumentally, as well as working as a conductor, all of those activities being considered unconventional for a woman within the Netherlands at the time. Her work is often politically and socially engaged, despite the fact that she said that to her, music is simply a way of talking. Expressing my adventures and feelings in music and print came naturally to me, she said. To me, playing the piano and violin and writing music notes has always been my real life. That piece was taken from the album Four Works and was released on BV Hast Records and later re-released on Attaca in 1984. Okay, that's it again for now. The Tonic should be back on May the 12th, I believe, at 10am British Summertime. As always, you can check the show's Instagram page for confirmation, the underscore tonic underscore. Thank you to Meg, Rosie, and everyone at Threads for hosting. I'm Luke Fraser. Thanks for listening.